Welcome everybody to Ness and Dorma. This is your chat about 80s and 90s football. I am Lee Calvert and joining me tonight are Mr. Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Hello, hello. And the return of the greatest thing to leave Liverpool since the Titanic, it's Mr. Gary Naylor. Hello, Gary. Uh, about the same size these days. <laughs> I, uh, I, said, I said tonight, but obviously, it's a po- I keep forgetting it's a podcast. We're recording in the evening, but you could be listening to it at any point during the day. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, whatever. Uh, but we are here nonetheless. If you want to get in touch with us, there is a Twitter site, at Nesson Dorma pod on twitter there's a website nessandorberpod.com and then you can get in touch contact at nessandorberpod.com should you feel the need to email us but then also we've got our new patreon site patreon.com slash nessandorma and we don't do a thing on the podcast anymore without giving some sort of ticker tape argentina 78 final under the hunter sort of parade honor to the people who've dived into their pockets and decided they want to support us at patreon.com slash nessandorma and those people are, since our last episode, Chris K, ATD, Politics Theory Other, Hall Maguire, Adam Burbage, Adam Roberts, Brian Cotter, and Liam O'Donnell. We are incredibly thankful to you, and you are now obviously our closest friends. Now, what have we got coming up tonight, then? Or today, I've already done that before. So we're <laughs> going to do another nomination of the underrated hall of fame we're going to go back to 1994 to a particular team who had particularly grand ideas about attacking football and we're also then going to do another journeyman of the week so let's start off straight away with our nomination this week well not our nomination actually it's a reader's nomination for the underrated hall of fame listener dan butler emailed us to say this he said i will become a patron at patreon.com slash nessundorma but on the condition that you do an underrated player segment on Steve Oggy Agrizovich. He's the same age as my dad, and at least a big part, at least as big a part of my life, given I can't remember a time when he wasn't our goalie in the 80s. And he's been coached right through to last season at Coventry City, obviously, I'm assuming, Dan. Uh, P.S. He said, I'll probably become a patron anyway, but please, it'll be nice if you did do Steve Agrizovich. <laughs> However, so there you go, Dan. Your campaign of one email has been successful, and we are going to talk about Steve Oggy Agrizovich in the underrated Hall of Fame. A little bit of background before we talk about him. He was born in Mansfield in 1957 from a Yugoslav family. Actually, I didn't, until we looked at it, I didn't realise that his name was Yugoslav. Obviously, I knew it was somewhere over there. I didn't know it was that. His father had to flee their village during the Second World War in 1942 when the Nazis turned up, which is probably a very wise course of action. And when the war was over, his dad was offered asylum in England or Australia and he opted for a life of mining in Nottinghamshire. (laughs) Which I think is very good. However, you see, as a Lancashire miners lad, I then start thinking, I hope his dad wasn't a scab. <laughs> Which is probably unfair, but that's that's where I am. Um, he had trials as a youngster with local clubs, but none showed any interest. Perversely, get this right, figure this one out. He was told he was too big to be a goalkeeper. Well, that was a thing back then, is that... Oggy, who was always called Big Oggy, as I as I recall it, was seen as some kind of a freakish giant because I think he was maybe six four or something. He had the the look of a, a kind of lock forward uh, mm. as well, but he was always seen as kind of freakishly large at sort of six four, maybe maybe six five. 
Um, where, of course, now, you know, there'd be a few sort of turned up eyebrows. Oh, you know, could do with being an inch or two taller or something. <laughs> but they, they were like lock forwards then. They were, they, were, they were big guys, where now they tend to be these sort of narrow strips, don't they? A little bit like David De Gea or something. They yeah, all, look at Courtois. Look, he's, not, he's very long, but quite lean, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. They always look good in the, uh, in the lycra. But, um, <laughs> you know, Oki blocked about half the goal off just standing still. I think. So, um, yeah, his size was a was a big talking point for a while. He ended up playing well. He ended up playing part time for Chesterfield because of because he was too big, obviously. And uh, and his and while his day job was in the police, which I didn't I didn't realise. Due to his size, he was tasked with sorting out the near do wells in Nottingham City Centre. He loved the job, and football wasn't his first love either. He preferred cricket, where he played for Shropshire. Um, and apparently took he played four list A games and took um twenty no, how many wickets? Four wickets at twenty-eight and a bit. Yeah, that would be probably minor counties playing in either the Gillette Cup or the NatWest Trophy. And he was certainly one of the uh reputedly best players. He was a bowler, of course, opening bowler, uh, on the uh outside first class cricket. And I'm pretty sure I remember him playing at Southport um in his Liverpool days. Um but he was uh yeah, he was a, a very handy cricketer indeed. Well, he must have been pretty handy. Three of the wickets he took were Martin Moxon. Chris Board and Alvin Kalicharam. Yeah. They're not easy well. ones to get hold of, are they? Let's be honest. <laughs> so, yeah, so he, he loved a bit of cricket, but decided to actually, when Arthur Cox offered him full terms at Chesterfield in 1977, and he took a pay cut to leave the police to join up and turn pro. That happened to Ian Wright as well. He was on less money on his first contract at Palace, which was something like a three-month contract than, than the factory he was working in. According to what he, he's 115 quid a week at the faction, and Steve Koppel offered him 105 quid a week on his first Palace contract. It worked out well uh, for all, him. All the boots you can clean as well. <laughs> yeah, bless him. Uh, yeah, so then he, he turns professional with Chesterfield. He joins Liverpool later that year, and I think I think he was with Coventry for so long, you forget he almost existed before Coventry, if you know what I mean. Um, and he was on the bench for the European Cup final victories in 78 and 81, which until we looked into this, I definitely did not know. Goalkeepers were, oh, they're still not a thing off the bench now, but you'd have to, you'd have, to have some serious problems to get your goalkeeper on back then, wouldn't you? Well, didn't well, Jimmy Rimmer Spink, come up? Yeah, it happened in the 82 final, didn't it? <clears throat> Jimmy Rimmer came off and Nigel Spink came on for um, Villa and had a famous game oh, and they course, won it. Oh, yeah. I think that's right. He didn't start the game, did he? Yeah, he yeah, definitely I mean, didn't start. It was about nine minutes in, I think, Rimmer... Uh, was replaced by Spink, and it was all a kind of controversy as to whether Rimmer should have been playing at all because he went in, you know, there was rumours of injuries, I think, at the time and everything. And anyway, Nigel, uh, Nigel Spink played uh, brilliantly in that final, obviously uh, became a hero and then became a, a regular. But, yeah, it definitely happened. Off topics, like you mentioned, Jimmy Rimmer, I had the 1978 Scorcher Annual which, I mean, I was only two in 1978, so I must have picked it up from a charity shop at some point. And there was a big feature in it about England touring the USA in 1978, probably because they weren't at the World Cup, I'm guessing. And I always remember because Jimmy Rimmer was in goal and there were loads of pictures of him. That was a complete sidebar, but it just reminded me of me, I missed that Scorcher annual, I must try and dig it out. It's in a box somewhere, I guess. Um, 
He moves to Liverpool. He's on the bench. The in '82 he leaves Liverpool, signs for Shrewsbury in the second division, where he played two seasons. In '84 he signs for Coventry for two hundred and fifty thousand pound. Was that a lot of money for a goalkeeper in 1984? I can't quite get my head around it. Uh, to my memory, it, it probably was. Yeah, I mean, um, goalkeepers were as now, or, or certainly as of to a couple of years ago, I think. Uh, significantly undervalued for for such a, a crucial uh, position so that does sound that does sound like a fair bit for a goalkeeper for sure so 1984 he was part of the, obviously you can't mention it without the 1987 cup final uh, despite Clive Allen scoring after two minutes Coventry win in the 3-2 win in extra time he holds the club appearance record at Coventry with 601 appearances between 1984 and 2000 he's also one of the few goalkeepers to score an open play with the booming two-bounce kick from his hand in a 2-2 draw with Wednesday in 86. And he was also a stalwart of a number of the relegation escapes and, of course, was famously mentioned, Rob, in Ron Atkinson's rant at um, the Sky Guy, was, wasn't um, it? Wasn't it the opposite? Wasn't it Dave Besson who was mentioned? Because who won the match? It was seven which is better. And I can say we must have played not bad then. Thanks, lad. <laughs> right, it, yeah, it was okay. Yeah. Headphones, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, that's Ruth. right. Yeah. So it wasn't a Grizzvich. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, he's one of only four players in history of league football in England to play in four different decades. It's so a great start, that. Great start, isn't it? The other three are, for those of you listening, you're thinking, I'll give you what, you know, while I'm waffling, I'll try and think of the three might be. I'll give them you now. John Lukic, Stanley Matthews, and Peter Shilton. Since retiring, he's had various backroom coaching roles, including stints as a caretaker manager before retiring at the end of the last season. As a, I think he was goalkeeper coach at Coventry by the time he retired. The thing is, I suppose, the question we always come to now, we always ask is, is Steve Grizovic underrated? Can I just briefly interrupt and yes. just say one other thing post-career? So I just, he was the subject of an internet hoax in 2003. I'm just reading this from the Guardian site. Former Coventry goalkeeper Steve Grizovich has been forced to confirm he's safe and sound at home in England after an internet petition claimed he'd been jailed by the Kazakhstani government. <laughs> According to a petition posted on petitiononline.com, Grizovich has been travelling the world on public transport, where his money was over the but had accidentally trespassed onto Kazakhstani private military land and was being held on, held on suspicion. Yeah. <laughs> and and one of the, there were messages of support along the line, one of which said, please free Steve as he's a bent-nosed hero to millions. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, and when he was interviewed after that, he said, I can definitely confirm that that's not me I, and I'm not there. He said, <laughs> Grizzly said, I'm told that only 57 people signed a petition to get me back. So I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's going to carry much weight with Tony Blair, he said. He really was. <laughs> underrated yeah. <laughs> um, so he wasn't underrated in Coventry obviously because as as Dan who sent this in said he was a complete and utter legend I suppose the question is should he have had a bit more recognition from England because he never ever got called into an England squad despite but well was he one of the best goalkeepers in the league for, for that that time question one Gary what do you reckon well I think he probably was um Coventry did have those relegation scraps and you know in my mind's eye I can see uh was it Dion Dublin with his finger in the air saying that they were they were staying up so he he always got plenty of work for Coventry but I think one of the problems is that he, he wasn't 
that showy he did he did everything yeah. well without ever doing anything spectacularly well so you know i think a a kind of greatest hits of big oggy is him you know plucking crosses out of the air um, punching <laughs> yes. the ball off uh, off chris nichols head or something like that and um just just generally being competent um today he probably struggled because you know for all of his scoring goals of big booming shots uh, or rather clearances from the foot i don't think he was the uh, the best on the ground or any of that kind of stuff so you know i, I mean i think at the at the time it was a it was a time when goalkeepers were were seldom i mean you you pretty much had to Tony Schumacher, a, a, an opponent, to to even get a talking to, never mind get a yellow or red card. So they were never they were never suspended, and um, they they weren't injured that often either because I think the uh, you know there the literally wasn't a great deal of of running around. It was shot stopping. It was doing that getting up off the ground to get the second saving uh, stuff. So it was it was it, it, there weren't that many opportunities and of course because not every match was necessarily televised um sometimes goalkeepers who weren't playing in the europe big european ties you, you might only see them three or four times a, a year perhaps on match of the day making a handful of saves so it was pretty hard to to get yourself into the kind of selectors uh uh, eye shot, so to speak. Um, if you if you were a keeper then, but um, I'm sure he was. I'm sh well in my mind's eye, he was competent and he was just kind of that level below the the keepers who were getting selected. But then, you know, what is what is the difference between a Peter Shilton and a and a Steve Grizovich? You know, if you if you ask me to put my finger on it, I'd say that you know Shilton won more honours and was a key man in the Forest and everything else. But if you ask me to say what made him a better goalkeeper, I couldn't do it. You know it when you see it, though, don't you? I think that's the thing. It's hard to describe it. You might know it when you see it. I suppose the question is, because um, he coincided with that time when Chris Woods was completely unshiftable as the man sat on the bench in the England 13 shirt, as it would have been then. Um, was he any better or worse than Chris Woods? No, I think he, I think he was slightly below Woods. Woods was a very good keeper. We kind of forget this because his England career ended in a flurry of mistakes. But a Grizzly, I mean, I, I would say a Grizzlich was... Probably. I mean, it's slightly before my time, but from everything I've read and seen, I'd say he was as good potential as Gary, who's often the third-choice keeper. <clears throat> I think the point Gary makes is really interesting, that keepers who make great saves and make mistakes are often preferred to keepers who are just very solid. It's like the whole kind of... Edwin van der Sar was a sensational goalkeeper, but he rarely made eye-catching saves. Grinsovich was on that side of it, I think, and that probably counted against him. Um <clears throat> He was clearly a very good goalkeeper. I just think there weren't, like Gary said, there weren't many windows in those days. Shilton played pretty much every game. If you actually look in the in Bobby Robson's era, I think there were only six keepers played. So Seaman, Woods, Shilton, and then Besson, Bailey, and Spink played a combination of a total of five games between them. So there wasn't much. Oh, actually, I'm Ray Clements, sorry, going early on, but there weren't just weren't many vacancies really. Um, and yeah, he don't forget out. Bobby no, Mims, right? Don't forget Bobby Mims. <clears throat> I never forget Bobby Mims. Bobby but Mims yeah, always reminds Bobby Mims. Grizovich now, Grizovich will get games definitely, um, and would arguably be England's. Well, uh, in terms of pure goalkeeping ability, forgetting all the abilities to actually play football, but I think he's as competent a goalkeeper as as anyone they've had in the last I don't know however long decade or so, maybe Bobby, longer. Bobby Mims always reminds me of Sports Night. 
I don't know why. It always seems to be on the highlights of Sports Night, Bobby Mims, every time I watched it. It's obviously wrong and a false childhood memory, but that's just the way that he plays out in my mind. He's always on the end of a hiding on Sports Night, Bobby Mims. I think he played for Everton in FA Cup finals, Bobby Mims. He did. So... And he played, he was a Chelsea QPR, did he play for Bobby Mims? He, he was the goalkeeper won the UAE. Did he save the pen, winning penalty or a bit of penalty save? I'm sure he was in 84. Can't remember for another episode. Yeah, there's there's a whole kind of um, interesting discussion to be had, perhaps. Oh about, God, it was uh, Tony Parks. About, sorry, yeah, I'm getting was... mixed up. What an yeah, there's a there's a whole discussion, perhaps, for a, a future pod about sort of goalkeepers of, of this period because it really was hard to judge them. And I remember, you know, in the days of Saint and Greavesy, and Greavesy would be there, oh, you Scottish goalkeeper, you know, and because. The only time you saw Scottish goalkeepers were the highlights or, you know, a preview of an old firm game. And, of course, what they were showing were goals. And <laughs> keepers are often at least partially uh, contributory negligent uh, in terms of goals. So when you, you, you're only seeing highlights, you're only seeing uh, the errors of goalkeepers, it becomes very, very difficult to to rate them. Whereas with the, the big clubs... Um, they were obviously they were on match of the day, but they had the European football, which was on sports night. And so you you got a much rounder sort of uh, picture of a of a 80s or 90s goalkeeper or 70s, 80s into early 90s goalkeeper if they were playing for the kind of clubs that got featured FA Cup. Uh, replays and stuff like that in highlights than if you just saw them on kind of on the ball or Saint and Greavesy or football focus um, so it, it's really hard to to sort of um, get any anything that that sounds sensible when you're talking about rating goalkeepers off the telly because you know um, there wasn't there wasn't that much but well what, what I would say about Oggy is that you when he was in the opposition goal, you were pretty sure there wasn't going to be a kind of panicky back pass or there wasn't going to be anything uh, overly flowery. He wasn't going to sort of uh, throw the ball in his own net. And you couldn't always say that about uh, opposition goalkeepers. So you kind of thought, oh, you know, it's going to take a good one to get past him. And as metrics go, it needs a good one to get past him is probably about as good a uh, metric mm. as we can have at that time. It must have been weird having to judge players with your own eyes rather than being told what to think by Twitter and raw data. <laughs> I, I, can't, I just can't imagine. But yeah, no, you're right. It's weird how many times would you see a Grizzavich? You know, you get 10 minutes of match of the day here and there. Because um, the match of the day games were pre-planned, weren't they? So it could be there was no kind of pattern as to what level of performance you'd have to produce. But yeah, it's quite interesting. I guess you wouldn't see them much you, at all. You, you would see them more... Read, read the newspapers, obviously. Yeah, you'd see them more in... Uh, and it's one of the reasons why the FA Cup, I think, has such kind of iconic status. You'd see more of him in kind of sports night where, you know, it's Wednesday, Wednesday night and we're going to Elland Road for the quarterfinal replay between Coventry City and uh, Leeds United. And, and then you'd see kind of extended highlights. But um, league games... You know, if you weren't if you weren't picked for you, know, you could go you could go two months without being picked for match of the day, even if you were a, a first division side as was. So, you know, it, it was hard to 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 get any kind of um, exposure that 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 you get today. So, in summing up, then, uh, obviously we nominate people for the underrated Hall of Fame. From what we've been saying, it sounds like we're we're letting him fly in there. On his own flying carpet, Oggy, because we're so 
convinced of his underratedness looking back, but that's my view. What do we reckon? Yeah. I'm going to shit person when we get to this moment and we decide someone can't go in. Yeah, when is that? But, but Well, I don't know. Possibly when we do um, Tony Parks. No, I don't know. Um, Grigovic, yeah. Bobby Mims is never getting there. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe I mix those two up. That's disgusting. That's the, <laughs> the first sign of all here, anyway. Uh, yeah, no, no, absolutely for me. Yeah, it's a clear one for me, but I, I have a feeling that there'd be at least a handful of other goalkeepers we could come up with about which we could pretty much make the same claims that we've made here maybe maybe not some games for for coventry city but um certainly a long career uh tony coton's a, a a good example a long career that um that that had uh some highlights maybe not absolute peaks the way that uh, nigel spink did in a european cup final um and and they would and they would go go in um i think what might be more interesting is some point in the future um if we're going to pick a, a an all-time 11 from the hall of fame because who would be goalkeeper then ah be- yes well we're, we're a long way to go before we get to that but yeah. i'm not saying that we won't get there so dan there you go your nomination for the underrated hall of fame has been successful and in goes Steve Grizovich. If any of you lovely listeners out there do wish to nominate somebody for the underrated Hall of Fame, because Christ knows we don't fancy doing the work every week. So, you know, you can please nominate away at Pod on Twitter or contact at Pod, or there's a contact page on the website, nessendormapod.com or I don't know, just shout it in the streets, we'll hear it or something. But basically, just, just, just please let us know. Shall we move on to our main discussion of the episode then, which is around Tottenham and the famous five. We're going to take you all the way back to 1994, the summer of. We'll give you a bit of background in a minute. When, if you remember what was going on then, well, basically, the first Mori poll since Tony Blair became Labour leader gave him a massive boot to say he was going to become Prime Minister. Huddersfield Town had just moved into their new all-seater Alfred McAlpine Stadium in 1994. The Sunday Trading Act meant that supermarkets could open on a Sunday. And the uh, thanks, thanks for that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. that, that's why Matt Gary's never available on the weekend to do anything. Um, <laughs> and the provisional IRA just declared their first ceasefire, which didn't quite go all the way. So that's where we're up to in the world. And, we're, and also what we're finding out now is that Aussie Ardiles is suddenly loomed large at Tottenham because he'd taken over as manager of Tottenham in July 1993 in the wake of Alan Sugar's sack in a Terry Venables. The first season was pretty miserable. Tottenham flirted with relegation, losing seven games in a row at one point and eventually finishing 15th, three points above the relegation zone. At the end of 1993-94, the FA, after a lengthy investigation, found them guilty of serious financial irregularities in the 80s under Irving Scholar and handed Spurs the biggest punishment ever given to an English side, 600,000 quid. Or to put it another way, about a week of Cristiano Ronaldo is what they got fined in today's money. A 12-point deduction for the 1994-95 season, and they were suspended from the FA Cup. The latter, however, were eventually quashed. They didn't start on minus 12. The points reduction was reduced to six before the season and then abandoned, but the fine was increased to 1.5 million. Ardiles' response was to basically say, right, sod this, let's just attack everything. Before we get into that and talk about who the players are, my question, I suppose, is this Tottenham team of 1994, were they the first sort of obviously on-brand Premier League era team? 
how do you mean on brand? We think about well, I suppose it to me the the on brand of the Premier League is this massive flood of money and a massive sort of um, explosion of sort of foreign signings and excitement and everyone suddenly being really well into the football and it and it cutting through from as we mentioned before. Yeah, so probably you know, because you could they, argue Black Blackburn spent a lot of money, although not as much as people remember, but obviously they spent it on good old Anglo-Saxon players. So yeah, probably Newcastle kind of were getting up and that they kind of the year after. So yeah, yeah, probably. I, I've done a little bit of thinking about this. I know, I know, yeah. thinking. And um, I I think there's something in that uh, that you say, Lee, but my, my thinking was around something slightly different, but arrives at the same conclusion. And, you know, maybe this is me being a chippy scouser, you know, who'd have thought it. Um, but there were so few places to find out about football in those days. I mean, it's only, it's only 25 years ago, but the world was, as you've already indicated, very, very different. And there were really only a, a handful of, of journalists who would be reporting for the tabloids and the uh, and the broadsheets. There'd be a couple of football programmes on Football Focus, Match of the Day, um, whatever they were calling it on Sunday on ITV, their highlights programme. Um, and there would be a little bit on the on the radio. At, at 6.06 had probably started then, but, but it yeah. was in its early days and it was more kind of anecdotes and stuff like that. Fanzines had been around, but they were they were um, getting into a kind of manifestation. It was when Saturday comes and there was club fanzines. But I think we, we now, we've already said just how many voices there are now um, writing and talking about football, but then there weren't that many. And certainly as a chippy scouser, uh, my feeling was that the, the vast majority of people that I was reading uh, their views on football lived within about a three-mile radius of either Arsenal or Tottenham, and um, they were they were now you know would be called the Islington media elite or something like that. But there was certainly a sense that that you know if someone coughed at Tottenham, they were they were you know next in line for an England uh, call up, um, and to some extent a little bit a little bit like that at, uh, at Arsenal as well. And uh, I remember um, going to. And I know we're throwing it forward a little bit, going to the semi-final at Elland Road to see Everton uh, play Tottenham. And um, there was a, definitely a sense that, you know, the country's willing uh, Tottenham to, to play Manchester United in the final everyone's looking for. And, um, you know, I, I, I think there was more than just a bit of, I say, chippy scouserdom in that. <laughs> um, you know, the North London clubs didn't need to do much to get the attention of the press, put it that way. And maybe that's why it still looms large in my brain then, 25 years on. Um, so our dealer's response was to attack, as we've already said. And that, so that's when we looked to sign Diego Maradona, which would have been a brilliant idea, obviously, given everything that came <laughs> afterwards. Um, and he eventually decided against it. Um, he signed Jürgen Klinsmann from Monaco, which was, well, is it, it, I find it very hard now to look back and reflect, but it, it seemed to be, because there's so many big players come to the Premier League now, it was a massive, massive thing, Jurgen Klinsmann coming, in my memory. Does, is that the memory that we all share? Yeah, absolutely. He just had a great cup. What age would he have been? 29-30. Monaco, I think, got to the semis of the European Cup. 
just a fantastic player known by everyone. I'm trying to think, was, was he the first kind of Was he before Zola? Class? Yeah, he was a couple of years before Zola. I mean, Cantona came, but he wasn't world-class or certainly not world-renowned. Um, so, yeah, it was a huge deal. There were actually quite a few interesting signings that summer. But, yeah, a lot of kind of good players from the World Cup. But he was the biggest easily. I mean, yeah, he was a superstar. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I endorse everything that, that Rob said. Um, but looking looking back on it, he was he was also he he also did something that I remember watching a, a, an interview on on Match of the Day, and this shows you know how the world has moved on. And he was being interviewed, and I thought to myself, God, he speaks good English, because he hadn't played in England, he'd never lived in England, and yet there he was speaking, you know, for sure, uh, very good uh, English for sure, and. Um, <laughs> And uh, colloquial English uh, as well, and uh, yeah, he 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 wasn't just you know a, a footballing superstar. He seemed at a time, and maybe there was still a bit of hangover of Gaza around. He seemed a grown up amongst men, um, amongst kids, not just sort of on the field in terms of his his play, but also kind of off the field. And um, you know, uh, he he he. And I'm sure we'll talk about it later. You know, he did the dive and things like that. But he also he, he had this sort of cuddly nickname of, you know, Clinzy, you know, Clinzy. And so that kind of took away some of the, the fear of of, uh, you know, this 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 foreigner. And um, I've, I've since developed a, a, another uh, theory that we're in this country. We're allowed to to like one German per decade. So. Um, <laughs> So yeah, you got you're allowed to like Bert Troutman in the fifties. Uh, I'm not sure in the sixties. I think we can we can maybe say the young Franz Beckenbauer, although I'm not absolutely certain about that. In the in the eighties, of course, it was uh, it was Boris Becker. In the nineties, we were we were allowed to like uh, Klinsey. And um, you know he was he was I think widely liked around uh, by opposition fans as well because I, I, of his commitment and his style and his uh, cosmopolitanism. I don't I agree with that, but I don't think he was liked at all when he was signed. He was no, he wasn't. Was but he was disarmed a... everyone with the dime, exactly. didn't he? It was brilliant. Just disarmed everyone, and then you see interviews, you realise interesting guy. You're right, worked so hard, brilliant. And even down to little things like he used to drive to games and he's Beatle, didn't he? Yeah. Um, which, yeah, he just seems a really nice guy. Sheringham was incredibly complimentary in his in his biography afterwards, basically saying how he settled in oh. really well. I think it, the problem is, is that, of course, we'd been watching him for years and he was just this diving twat, wasn't he? <laughs> let's, let's be honest. He was like, you diving twat, you know, every time we used to watch him. And, and then all of a sudden he turned up as... And he died, he yeah, died that, in a particular yeah. style. The arch I mean, back the thing. Full, yeah. The arch yeah. back, the head back, the arms. I mean, it really was um, leaving no doubt in anybody's <laughs> mind that it was I'd, a dive. He was. I'd say he was a bit on that. I used to love watching him in Serie A for Inter. But the, the dive thing was actually, I think it was Sheringham's idea um, before the first game. He said, look, if you score, why don't you do this? And then they did, and it all went down brilliantly. Well, and, um, don't quite remember. It's obviously after he scored his first goal, he did a he did a dive into the court towards a corner flag, didn't he? And they all joined yeah. in, sort of yeah. self-mockingly. Nobody had done it before. That was no, it was a shock. It was a it was a great idea. And then he scored. I think he scored two. He certainly scored an absolute screamer in his home debut against Everton. Possibly yeah, after so. that, no way back. And it, yeah. it was yeah. that classic thing. He went, oh, oh, he's a really nice fella. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's, when he was interviewed, he was like, "Oh, well, he's dead. He's dead. Pleased to be here and quite humble." And yeah, and he works really hard and like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, as if he got to be a world class footballer just by 
scratching his yeah. <laughs> yeah, or diving. Yeah, the only reason yeah. he's a successful striker in Serie A is because he could dive. Yeah, but then yeah. again, I don't think that was that far divorced from some of the English know. football mentality yeah. at the time. So, oh, oh no, that's the thing. It's so easy to forget just how parochial everything was. Um, so, why were they called the famous five? It's because they played five players up front, and as well as signing Klingsman, they already had Sheringham. Uh, he was there. They had Nick Barnby, who was there. East side, who was 20 at the time, I think. Ardiles signed Ilya Dimitrescu from Stour Bucharest for 2.6 million. Obviously, Klinsman and um, Dimitrescu had had brilliant World Cups in the USA. For those, if you want a full breakdown of all of that stuff, then we have got a USA 94 episode back there in the in the archives, so go and, go and have a look. Um, and they were both kind of sort of the best in the world. England... They had Sheringham, they had Barmby, and then they had Darren Anderton as well. So the our deal is then, I suppose, it's a very simple way to do it. It just goes, well, I'll just play all five of them. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the thing about five attackers is slightly disingenuous. But what they did, they had base, but you're right, they did their one holding player, which would become Popescu, but the start was poor Colin Caldwood. Then they had Barmby as a sort of centre midfielder, but pushing on. Anderton and Dimitrescu wide, showing Clinton up front. So it wasn't a million miles removed from 4-2, but it did expose Caldwood. I always remember this, when England played Euro 2000, it reminded me a bit, Ardila's Tottenham remind me of Keegan's England. Because when they lost to Portugal, it was a bit, I think it was at 2-0 or 2-1, mm. but about six Portuguese players broke on Ince on his own. Five <laughs> England players were upfield, and Ince is well past his best here. And you can see him looking left and right thinking, what the fuck? And it just reminds that's what I feel Caldwell must have had to put up with as well, because um, he was left exposed. I mean, Barnby and Anderson were hardworking. By all accounts, certainly Sheringham mentions that Dimitrescu didn't particularly work hard. So, yeah, it would have obviously left them exposed. But actually, there, there are a couple of myths about the famous five, which we'll probably get to in a bit. That point about sharing Gibbs' frustration with Dimitrescu is an interesting one because even in the very first game, which is that epic sort of 4-3 win over Sheffield Wednesday, uh, Sheringham says, you know, all he wanted... To, it's like we're running out of socks <laughs> for him because all he wanted to do was cut him from the left wing and bend the ball into the top right-hand corner. He tried that several times in a game and continued to do so in the matches that followed. Sometimes the result wasn't spectacular. More often than not, it wasn't. Ilié's <laughs> attitude was, if it works, great. If it doesn't, so what? He was a showboater, Ilié. And it was all going to end in tears. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's a. I suppose it's interesting with Dumitrescu. How did he work out? He ended up. You mean what happened next? No, just in terms of how did we feel he went? Oh, he was. Well, it just didn't work. I mean, he was bundled off to Sevilla quite soon on loan mm. by Jerry Francis, and then um, yeah, I think he's. I mean, I don't know enough about his career away from Spurs, but certainly in this country, he's remembered as being absolutely brilliant for Romania. Played a system that suited him a lot more, um, more counter-attack and so on. Um, so, yeah, I don't remember a huge amount beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd i have him down. There's a few players like it who come from the World Cup with big reputations and just don't fit in. And, and you know, I don't put all the blame on, on them. So... You know, in my mind's eye, he's a bit like El Hadji Diouf without the spitting. Um, it just, it just came expecting to get. You know, people thought he might score thirty goals a season, or certainly twenty goals a season. He wasn't an out-and-out goal scorer, but he certainly uh, came with a big reputation. And um, yeah, I think uh, that that quote about um, sort of fitting the other ten around his needs kind of came through a little bit from the outside looking in. 
Uh, he was a class player, though. I mean, technically, he was absolutely yeah. superb. But you're right. I think a lot of um, times, you're right, sometimes it just doesn't quite fit. Um, the Romania team fit perfectly. Him and Hadji pretty much doing what they liked. Um, and they had seven players behind them doing a lot of donkey work and then Ratatouille. Uh, so, yeah, it just didn't quite fit, really. But it, it was a class player. It wasn't, a, you know, his World Cup performance wasn't a fluke, I don't think. Um, he was kind of, it was commensurate with his ability. Yeah, I think that's fair. And of course, Colin Corwood was kind of put out of his misery when they signed Jacob Apescu sometime into the season. I can't remember exactly when. It was quite early, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah from... it was... He's made his debut in the seventh league game, I think. When they actually, funnily enough, the seventh game, it looked like they were getting a good team back together. It was the first time he didn't play the famous five. Gary Mabbott returned, Popescu started. More sensible team with two in midfield, two in the centre midfield, and they got plugged four one at home by Forrest. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and of course, though, I mean, that he, Popescu, you know, that yeah, Popescu was, was very fine. Yeah, player. Sheringham was yeah, very was. complimentary about him as well. The, um, but and of course, Popescu, Tottenham's Tottenham's loss with Popescu was Everton's game, Gary. Of course, because it meant that. Room had to be made in the Tottenham midfield, so off Vinnie Samways went to uh, <laughs> to Everton. <laughs> Who could forget Vinny Samways? If anybody has forgotten Vinny Samways, can you please tell me? Because I'd like to. So. <laughs> Vinny Sideways, as he was uh, colloquially known. He ended up in Spain, didn't he? Vinny Samways. He had quite a good career in Spain. He wasn't a bad player, but you're right. He's quite no, safe. safe. I saw him as the second of two men sent off in the first half at Filbert Street. <laughs> Steve See Sedgley went to Ipswich uh, as part of the clear out. And Andy Gray, not, not the misogynist one, the, the other one. Um, went to Marbella. I have I have one memory of Steve Sedgley, which is scoring a goal and then running, and his celebration was like a double bicep flex, <laughs> and he just stood there. And I think that was probably the best thing he ever did. Although somebody who's an Ipswich fan is no doubt going to get in touch and say, "How dare you say that about Steve Sedgley?" But um, yeah, so that was that. So the only st- your point, Rob, about this famous five thing is perhaps overstated because they only started six league games together. Before yeah. even our dealers, I think, thought, shit, this is... Well, I think that's what he thought. Yeah, and they actually they won three of those. Um, and the, the, the record, funny, I've got worse as he tried to restore a bit of order. But, um, yeah, I mean, the game that sort of derailed them, they lost the third game at home to Man United, who were the champions, but they were a bit unlucky in that game. Sheridan had a penalty saved. So they won three of the first four. The game that derailed them, I think it was live on Sky. It was at home to Southampton, and everyone thought it would be an easy win. They were one nil up. Then Campbell was sent off for something or other, possibly giving away a penalty. And then Letizia scored the penalty and scored a late winner after a blunder from possibly Nethercott. But it just that, that kind of destabilised them and then they never really recovered. Um, the next home game was that Forest game where they were absolutely slaughtered. Um, and yeah, it soon, soon unravelled. And of course, in those days, there was still a lot of suspicion of foreign managers and foreign methods, as we said. It was pre-Wenger, pre-Rude Hullet. And so there was more and more scrutiny on our dealers who've seen as a bit of a kind of romantic crackpot. Um, and you know what? That's like once, once the tabloids turn, um, you're struggling a wee bit. So it wasn't actually that bad. I think by the time he was sacked, I think they were 11th, which, you know, isn't terrible. Um, they would have, Jerry Francis made a huge improvement. And funnily enough, I remember the team more for what Jerry Francis did than the whole famous five stuff. And it um, almost happened immediately under Francis, didn't it, from memory? He kind of just yes. really got them playing very, very uh, quickly. Yeah, and almost as if to goad Ardiles. It's quite soon after he came 
took over there. I think they had six clean sheets in a row, which is like a real two fingers. Um, but yeah, he did. I mean, he made a few. We'll, we'll probably get to him. He made a few little changes, which had a pretty um, immediate impact. Yeah. Let's just let's just outline for everybody in case you've forgotten what the kind of starting eleven was when the famous five were in full, full for those six games they were in full sweep you know you had in goal you had Ian Walker he was very young still at the time 22 23 years old David yeah. Kerslake at right back Saul Campbell and Stuart Nethercott as the centre backs Justin Edinburgh at left back Colin Calderwood basically you know trying to <laughs> hold back the tide on his own in in I suppose just in front of the back four in midfield sort of but who knows yeah. and then you had Anderton, Barnby, Dimitrescu, Klinsman, Sheringham that was their yeah, team I mean- it was effectively a diamond midfield, except the left winger Dimitrescu was like <laughs> in a free roll, which led to a bit, a bit of a, a bit of an unbalanced system. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, my my memory is that Nick Barnby kind of went further and further forward in his in his career. I mean, at that time, he was probably a midfield player who, as you said, pushed on, but um, he certainly wasn't. I don't think treated as a forward in that in that side. But um, yeah, the others were were. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they were going to be tracking back too often. The second... I mean, Anderton, would, Anderton worked very hard, didn't he? Uh, Clins with the sort of did, but only within the kind of limitations of being already up front. Barmy got injured fairly early on, didn't he, and was and was, was replaced by 34-year-old Mickey Hazard. Yeah, he kind of, towards the end, he got really desperate. He started throwing in all kinds of central midfielders. Mickey Hazard, he kind of dusted off Jason Zazel, who hadn't been seen for about a year. Um Darren Kasky, he was a decent young player, actually, very highly regarded. Yeah, he was, yeah. Uh, about the, the big one who would become quite important under Francis was David Howes, um, who our dealers used a little bit, but um, only... In fact, maybe he didn't. Just look, perhaps it was even after after he'd been sacked. Um, but he would become quite important under um, Francis. Pepescu and Howes played together a fair bit and gave him a more of a kind of solid base. Yeah, I think one of the problems that our dealers had is that is that you know everyone knew he was a a nice guy and and all of that, but his English. I mean, even now, I don't think it's great, but then it wasn't so good. So I think he had a real problem explaining his thinking, and so when they won, everybody said, "Oh, you know, great for for you know good old Aussie, you know, he's going to win the cup for Tottingham and all of that kind of stuff." But when when they lost, um. I don't think he was he was that able to get across what his thinking was or what he was going to try to do to improve it, and I think that had a that had an impact because I think there was a, a method in the madness, but the madness so overshone the method because we never really had it articulated as to what the method was. Uh, yeah, I, I'd argue he struggled to articulate it to himself, but yes, I yes. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, he he mentioned it a few years ago. He did an interview and he kind of cited Barcelona and saying Busquets is the Busquets is <laughs> Calderwood was my Busquets. He, he didn't say that, but but it, but that's not quite that's quite disingenuous because Xavi Iniesta and even the front three works so hard. But anyway, yeah. I I, think I want a T-shirt with Calderwood is my Busquets stripped on it. <laughs> I think it was just it was a bit of championship manager management by just blessed by it. You want Dimitrescu? Yeah, go on there. And then we'll just sort it out. But, but I mean, the funny thing is, though, it was when he tried to address it when things really started to go wrong and he ended up getting sacked. Um, so maybe he should have just kept playing the ball. So, so Barmy gets injured, Hazard comes in, and when by the time Barmy comes back, Anderton's then, I think, probably picked up the one of the first of his very 
long-term injuries, the groin this time. Um, and there were three or four of the five involved after that, really. As you said, Rob, it was it came to an end relatively quicker than people remember. I think everyone assumes this kind of madness ensued for half a season. And then it's only had to bring it to an end. Yeah, November ago. Yeah, Yeah. basically. So, and they had a they had a mental two legged League Cup tie with Watford, winning six three at Vicarage Road and losing three two at White Hart Lane, Um, and then the three nil defeat against Notts County. Ouch! In the next round, um, came off the back of a five two wallop in it against City at Main Road, and by this time, Sugar had had enough. Um, The five two, yeah, I mean the the five two was humiliating. I got a feeling that was one of the games of one match of the day, and they were an absolute mess um and obviously the Notts County game wasn't too good either I think was was Dimitrescu not sent off in that Notts County game possibly um he was in fact yeah which had quite a, a significant implications not only in terms of the result but also when Francis took over Dimitrescu was suspended and that allowed him to look at doing things differently but yeah I mean the City game I remember being particularly egregious because City weren't good um at all in those days uh, in fact, they were supposed to be the kind of comedy club, not not Spurs. Um, and I suppose there is something about this, isn't there, about how much of this kind of legend and, and all of the Spurs legend, the Tottenham way, you know, Danny Blanchflower saying it's not about winning, it's about glory and whatever it is he said. You, you probably know the quote better than me, Rob. Yeah, um, there's the Julie Welch film, wasn't it? The Glory, Glory Game that was on Channel 4, I think, in its early days. There was a whole romantic kind of uh, Tottenham, you know, even though we don't win, you know, the, the Lily Whites, uh, you know, f- for Harry and St. George and all I that sense, kind of I stuff. sense you're a fan of that. Unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> for Gary, as an Everton fan, he, he moved to London and has, to, has had to watch North London clubs beating his team for many years, I suppose. Is this yes. Yes, I, I saw I saw um, Chris Armstrong score a hat trick at White Hart Lane. So you know the, the the scars are still open. Yeah, so there's something about that, and 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 whether because that what Ardiles did played so much into that romantic notion yeah. of what Tottenham is and what Ardiles was as a player. You know, we all just remember him doing that. Uh, the was what do they call it? An umbrella kick against the on. Um, Escape to victory. That's a staple of all of our childhoods, or mine anyway. I was young enough to to do that. And there's something about him and Tottenham, and then this kind of personifies it. So then it never quite goes away, to go back to that kind of brand thing. So even though it was six games, effectively, it's it's never, ever gone away. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it you... You know, there's Ricky Villa's goal in the uh, in the FA Cup final, and there's the you know the whole kind of huddle mythology and and things like this that are, are all in there. And you know, perhaps for for another club, it wouldn't have been it would have been unusual, but it wouldn't have been sort of as iconic as these as these five. But it was a it was a kind of perfect storm of of the kind of myths that a club tells to itself and then leaks out into the public um the the kind of um as you said the incipient branding of the of the the premier league and the the kind of thing you know Tottenham were at the front of things with hookups with I think Holston and I think for a while they had their own kit manufacturer that they owned and it was all that kind of uh, of stuff all coming together and it, it, it fed into it and you know I have to say um even though you know people quite liked watching that uh, that Tottenham side and I say I think there was a, a lot of of uh, genuine affection for the likes of uh, 
of uh, Klinsman and maybe even Teddy Sheringham as well. There was a, quite a lot of Schadenfreude when it all blew up in the, in their face. Um, you know that some of those results that you've mentioned there uh, were quite fun. So while we're while we're on about results, let's talk about the results of the actually did have. We had the opening game against we've already mentioned against Sheffield Wednesday where they won three three four. They scored some great goals when they got going, didn't they? I mean, they really did. Especially Klinsman. Then, then there's Everton next, Gary. Did you go to that game? That was at no, White Hart Lane. I don't think I did. I might have been away uh, there, but um, either that or I've kind of blocked it out as a Freudian defence mechanism because uh, Klinsman scored that sort of Rooney-esque sort of overhead kick, come bicycle kick, call it what you will. Mm. Um, but you know, uh, revenge is a dish best served uh, cold, uh, and uh, Daniel Amakachi uh, <laughs> shouldn't have even have been on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's the game of with against United at White Hart Lane, which is really massively talked up in that sort of a potential barometer for you know a, the clash of who's going to win the title. Again, the excitement. Yeah, it was a, wasn't a great game actually. United scored, <laughs> Sheringham had a penalty saved. Um, yeah, it wasn't a huge game, uh, particularly good game. United was had a slightly weird start to that season, particularly away from home. They were terrible, um, but yeah, not not a great game. They beat Ipswich 3-1. They uh, lost to Southampton at White Hart Lane next. They... Yeah, that was that Monday night game, I think. Hmm. They then lose to Leicester City at Filbert Street 3-1. They beat Watford 6-3, as we mentioned, in the Cup. They then lose to Forest 4-1. They then beat Wimbledon 2-1. They lose to Watford again in that Cup replay. They then play Queen's Park Rangers and draw. They draw against Leeds. They have that, I've already mentioned that humiliating game against City at Main Road. They lose 5-2. Then they lose 3-0. Then they beat West Ham 3-1. And that's the night that Alan Sugar sacks him. Mm. Which is an interesting last well, one. He made his mind up already, hadn't he? Or there was enough of the madness in that game to, to justify doing it. Yeah, and that's actually the end of October. It didn't even didn't even make it to November. Um, yeah, it did, as you say, it all unraveled pretty pretty quickly. People always talk about that kind of attacking triumvirate, but it was quite a young defence, wasn't it, behind them? Yeah. Campbell's well, actually, in his teens still, Nethercott's 21. Yeah, Gary Mabbott was injured for a lot of the games that our dealers was in charge that season. Although, as I said, funnily enough, the game he came back, they got slaughtered. But I think that he would have helped. I mean, they had a lot of kids in that defence. Nethercott, who arguably wasn't good enough anyway. Mm. Campbell's, yeah, teenager. They were just vulnerable. I mean, they weren't, they weren't absolutely awful or anything. But, yeah, you're just the hype had been so great to then see them exposed that badly. And I do think a lot of it was just a mistrust of... If they were losing games 1-0, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as bad as... Well, obviously it's losing five two, but also you know losing three two or whatever. It's just it wasn't the dumb thing to be that open and that kind of romantic um, in the cold hard world of English football. We've got to remember is that the the rules were different then. Um, you know you could you could hack away at attackers even even in the mid nineties. You know it wasn't at the the height of the uh, 80s assaults that were just allowed, but it was you know the pitches weren't great. Um, you could you could stop these players with fouls and not just the kind of tactical fouling you see now. I'm talking about kicking players up in the air. So 
to to put so many eggs in the attacking basket uh, when the defenders had so much in their favour, you know, you could still pass back to the goalkeeper. I think you could still no, do you that. Could, you couldn't no, couldn't do that. No, not by then. It uh, but you could, you know, the offside had the offside rule changed by then. It was either change, but it was it was still it was nothing like as loaded to the attack as it is now. And so when you've when you say playing so many of your cards uh with forwards then um and it's so easy for for defenders to break the rules if you like and get away with it i mean it looks naive at best the funny thing is one of the games they won was actually away to wimbledon um they won 2-1 which was i think the penultimate west star of october which looking at wimbledon team McArthur and Dean Holger up front. Yeah. That kind of bit of fun afternoon. <laughs> yeah. There, was, there were kind of few contradictions about them. Um, but ultimately, you're right. It, just, it wasn't a sustained um, thing. And it wasn't It wasn't just the tactics. It was also the They were so top-heavy in quality, weren't they? Even when they were playing the kind of a normal 4-4-2 as it was then, they still had far too much shite at the back and um, couldn't... couldn't disguise him for that long although funnily enough Francis did manage to but he had a few kind of ways of doing that in the in the kind of analysis that you get now um just you know sort of almost anywhere I'm sure you even get it on YouTube and stuff like that but it was it wasn't around then the kind of analysis which shows one pass taking out five defenders um that would have happened over and over again against that that Tottenham side because they were too far up the field and they you know they did have players reluctant to to track runners and stuff like that so um again I think we we can kind of we we kind of forget how little we knew really in the eighties and and nineties, and some of that is a, a testament to the the kind of quality of the analysis that we get now. And like you, Rob, I think I'm I'm a bit skeptical about data in a dynamic environment where there's you know attack and defence and opposition and various uh, other elements that go into into someone's pass accuracy being 98% and somebody else's being 89%, you know, so what? But certainly the kind of of things they can do with the kind of um, on-screen graphics and things like this, which point out what square defences actually mean and stuff like that. I think in our dealers' uh, Tottenham sides, they would have had a f- bit of a field day on positioning of players and non- non-tracking of runs and stuff like that because... One- it, Sorry, it, felt, it felt like every match was well not every match that's unfair but it felt like there was almost a kind of festive testimonial atmosphere how many are we going to score today yeah however many you score we will score yeah. one fewer that was the philosophy um, <laughs> <laughs> they were um they also weren't fit enough you look like you yeah. see a lot of late goals um and a, a lot of very late goals and apparently Basically, they didn't do fitness work at all. It was just playing with the ball and, you know, expression, which is fine. And obviously, funnily enough, now that looks almost a better way. But at the time, it was the first thing Francis did was address that. He, he introduced what I think the players called Terror Tuesday, when they basically just ran and ran until they could breathe. Terror um, Tuesday, where they had to worked. all get the same haircut as Jerry Francis and before the training, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they weren't allowed to go out in the piss after training. But, yeah... Um, <laughs> So yeah, they just that was another thing. I don't think they were fit enough by all accounts. Um but they became the funny thing is it as you say, Francis turned out really quickly and they became and I know Gary wouldn't necessarily agree, but they became a, a really good side very quickly and they were very popular. You're right. 
most people did think they would beat Everton and there was an assumption of a, a dream final, as it was called. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they were a really good side. They actually, funnily enough, though, they won the cup. I think it was a quarter final. It might be the fifth round. They won at Anfield and they were given an ovation by the Liverpool fans. There was a, a lot of goodwill towards them. Um, because they were quite an exciting team, and because of Klinsman and so on. Um, well, I, yeah. I remember, I remember going to Allen Road thinking we're going to get beat here, and when the the sides ran out, I was even more sure we were going to get uh, we were going to get beat. So, I mean, I didn't think they were overhyped. I think there was a a bit of, as you say, as Super, I said earlier, yeah, focus yeah. over focus. But they weren't they weren't overhyped, especially when when Francis put that uh, that discipline uh, there. And it, it was a surprise that that semi final turned out the way it did. And you know, I, I thought that that Tottenham side were were really good. And um, I'd say early on under our dealers they were a bit showy, but say Francis put a bit of backbone in, and they had they had a lot of fine players. Um, but you know, they they didn't really I think realise their potential because because they looked at least a, a good cup team. Um, but I don't think they, they, they won a cup. Certainly there wasn't a one in the uh, year, so I don't think Tottenham uh, won the cup. But, um, yeah, they they, well, they they were a good side, and they were more than just a good side to watch. It all ended very quickly because the end of the year they lost Klinsman. Obviously, it was quite acrimonious. Barnby went to Borough. It's interesting, though, the way Francis rejigged the team. He had a few different things. When he first took over, he left Barnby out, even though Dimitrescu was suspended, because he wanted Barnby to play left side, uh, I basically wanted to kind of teach him how to for, on training ground for a few weeks. But it's also interesting that if you actually look at a lot of the games at the business end of that season, he plays not the famous five, but a famous five. So he plays Sheringham, Clinton, Barnby, Anderton, and instead of Dimitrescu, big Roddy Rosenthal. So five, <laughs> yes. five, it's five attackers. So Liverpool away in the cup quarterfinal, Arsenal away when they drew one all. But it was a much more structured thing. They have Rosenthal wide, Barnby wide, Anderton in the midfield with Popescu or Howes. And Anderton, of course, worked so hard. So having him in the centre was smarter than Barnby, I think. Um, but it is interesting that some of their better... Not Everton, funnily enough, they didn't play that. But a lot of their better results involved having what might be seen as five attackers, but it was just rejigged in a slightly cleverer way. Um, and apparently he, he says that and moving and I was reading a, a book which looks really good, actually. I must read it in its entirety called The Team That Dared To Do, which is all about that team. And Francis cites putting Anderton in central midfield as one of his kind of master strokes um, because it allowed him to then still play more attackers, but just in a different structure. But the semi-final, just quickly on that, uh, they had a lot of injuries at the back, which I hadn't realised. Also, this is slightly weird. Well, not weird, but in the the week before the game, Jerry Francis' son was in hospital with toxoplasmosis. Um, so he said his focus wasn't quite where it would have been. You know, see him all the time. Um, but he also said, funnily enough, and the players also said it as well, that Everton just wanted it more that day. Yeah, they definitely. Which kind of, and I suspect that all the over focus, as you say, was used as motivation. Certainly, because uh, it was actually it was almost almost a savage performance for Everton. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, mean, it, I mean, Jesus, if you're yeah. something, that's not nice at all. No. Um, we're just very, very good that day. And of course, they yeah, also, the, not only did they ruin a dream final, they also then beat United um, in the final. Yeah, yes, we did. Uh, yes. <laughs> the, um, the, yeah, the wind, the wind was, was with us. And as soon as the, uh, as soon as the second goal went in, even though Klinsman got a penalty later, there was a kind of sense that, that, the dice were rolled, and I mean, almost with that that Ardila side. I mean, one one might say that that 
that the the die was cast with them because um, even though they were playing well, they were still having those those crazy results of not County and, and Manchester City. And you know, again, it, it kind of plays into the ethos of of kind of Tottenham as a a football club. Here we are, sort of twenty five years later, still talking about an inconsistent but talented Tottenham mm. side. I mean, do do, do you? It's, do these things cling to clubs or or is it just the way we construct narratives if I'm allowed to say the word narrative um, <laughs> it's uh it, it is it is strange how 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 so many clubs seem to underline their reputations or maybe we say we just we just read that in yeah possibly I do think there was a bit more substance to the Francis team though I'd like yeah I, I, I tried to look it up and I couldn't I was trying to find a league table from the day he took over, and I would imagine to the end of that season, and I imagine they would be certainly top five, probably even higher. They had some brilliant results. They beat um, Blackburn, who were the eventual champions, and hammered them 3 1. Um, really impressive performance. The Liverpool game, I think, is a forgotten classic that FA Cup win um, when Clinton scored a last minute winner. Um, Shergham's got a brilliant goal to equalise. I was at the time, I was like, what a cup ties. Uh, and it's kind of been forgotten. And there was that famous game at Southampton when Cup replay 2-0 down, Big Ronnie comes on, scores the most ludicrous hat-trick from all angles. Mm. Uh, it's ridiculous. And they went on to win 6-2. Um, there's a great bit on, I think it was match in the 90s, I forget, but Klinsman basically was being interviewed about and he's laughing. And we looked at the goals and we said, he's never going to score these goals again. Because all three of them were just amazing goals. Um so, yeah, I, I don't know. I think they were pretty good. I actually quite like Francis, even after um, Barnby and Clinton went and Anderton turned out and moved to Old Trafford that summer. But it was still a pretty good side for two years. And then and he was soon on his way. The interesting thing about Francis taking over was when, when Ardiles went, within like nine days of that happening, Mike Walker went from Everton, uh, Gary. Ron yeah. Atkinson was sacked by Villa. Was this the first rash of incredibly early see and the start of the trend of the incredibly early season sacking relatively speaking people I weren't getting flirted in october were they certainly the first premier league season no one was sacked before christmas can't be certain about the second one but yeah gary might have a stronger memory yeah i i think i think there was a a, a kind of sense that clubs were starting to lose their heads and so on because Again, there wasn't the kind of social media. Almost every pundit, and I remember this in the days of, of Walter Smith, but it would it'd be the same for lots of other managers. Almost every pundit was saying would say about managers, "Oh, we need to give them more time. We need to give them more time." And you know, there the, there was talk of fan power, like it was a bad thing, not a good thing. <laughs> um, so it it, it probably it, it probably was because certainly the the orthodoxy was to was to give managers lots and lots of of time because you know the successful ones were the the ones who'd been longest at clubs, which of course is a kind of self fulfilling fallacy or whatever the expression is because they're successful because they're at clubs and or, or are they at clubs because they're successful and so on. So yeah, I think I think it was the the beginning. Maybe maybe it was a bit of a false dawn for knee jerks because I think that that knee-jerk sackings went away for a little bit and I think it's really with the the advent of of um 24-hour news cycles and obviously particularly phone-ins and then social media that that the the kind of knee-jerk uh, approach 
becomes more more prevalent. But yeah, I think it was unusual to see first division uh, managers uh, or Premier League managers as was um, sort of that kind of bloodletting in such a short time. I know he, I know Everton were diabolical, but he yeah, been there long. Yeah, he he wasn't there long, but it it was very clearly an error, and um, it was it was um, it was a quite a big move for for a club who you know would would boast of sort of five managers over forty years or something in the days of Harry Catterick and and so on. But the Walker thing, um, you know, I hate to say this because it sounds sort of almost racist or something, but he just looked wrong. He looked like a <laughs> he just looked like a kind of southern chancer, even though he he, he wasn't. Um, but he, he 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 didn't look he didn't look like Joe Royal looked sort of you know hewn of of northern limestone and. Um, and uh, yeah, it was never it was never the happiest of uh, of marriages. I don't think on either side, and uh, best best uh, divorced sooner. I think. And and Ron Atkinson was sacked around that time. Just a couple of things on that. One one of the games that did for him was a game. Do you remember uh, in famously in the UEFA Cup that season? Um, I think Phil King scored the winning penalty. But anyway, that was a Thursday night, and um, I think I've got the games right. It was Thursday night, and you know now you play Thursday night, you play Sunday. Well, they had to play Newcastle with league leaders Saturday 3 p.m. <laughs> and played to. I'm pretty sure Keegan was a co-commentator, pissing himself laughing, thinking we're not going to be screwed. But the other thing is that about a week before he was sacked, Doug Ellis kind of took the vote of confidence by to a new level by saying, "I think Ron Atkinson one of the best three managers in the business." <laughs> <laughs> a week a week later. <laughs> so let's. So speaking of people parting. Obviously, our dealers went. Let's talk about the aftermath then. We've already gone through in, in some detail that Jerry Francis came in, took over, reshaped the team, and Spurs eventually finished seventh. They made the semi-finals of the FA Cup, obviously losing to Everton, who walloped them in an Amakachi-led 4-1 thrashing. Um, Klinsman won the Football Writers Association Player of the Year in '95, but transferred to Bayern Munich after just one season. Presented Alan Sugar with a signed shirt as a gift, and I think we all remember what Alan Sugar did with it with his typical grace. I said he yes. wouldn't wash his car with it on television and said, said something ridiculous. Like I've just re I've, I've rebirth. What did he say? I've, I've given you your career back or something. It's like he was, he was playing, got just been to the, the semis of the European cup the year before with Monaco. We just had a brilliant world cup. And then he said, Oh yeah, you know, it wasn't for me. Your career would be in the toilet. Yeah, the, the second most he... the second most egotistical host of The Apprentice. <laughs> was that was that when he started going on about Carlos Kickerball, or was that in reference maybe, maybe when Arsenal signed Bergkamp later that year? He talked about Carlos Kickerball being over here for you know what a lad, eh? What a what a lad. Yeah. Um, Klinsmann wins the UEFA Cup the following year and captains Germany to victory in Euro '96, which of course we have an episode on as well. If you want to look back at that, Dimitrescu immediately wasn't. Francis's cup of tea at all went on loan to Sevilla Rob as you mentioned earlier at the start of 95-96 eventually transferred to West Ham didn't work out there either and after a couple of years playing in Mexico he returned to Stoya Bucharest before retiring at the age of 29 I didn't know that gee that's Nick, ridiculous. Yeah. Nick Barmby left at the end of the 1994-95 season with Middlesbrough then starting to with Steve Gibson starting to open his wallet quite significantly at Middlesbrough breaking their transfer record when Brian Robson signed him for 5.25 million. Darren Anderton, he ended up at Everton eventually, Barnby, didn't he? Yeah, he played well. Yeah, for and Everton. then Liverpool and yeah. And he he he's had the forgotten man of the um the 5-1 win in Germany. 
Yeah, of course, yes. He got the he got the first god, didn't he? Um, but everyone forgets. He he was the latest addition to the will this do on the left hand side of the England midfield problem, wasn't he? he was, yeah, he was quite he was quite useful for a while, but then very quickly faded. Um, <laughs> and then new, yeah. Anyway, that's another episode. Jesus, Darren, that's actually just. A quick aside on that, I was listening to um, the Under the Kosh podcast today. Apparently, when David Thompson got in the England squad, Sven said to him, what's your favourite position? Favourite position is wide right, but he thought, well, I'm no fucking chance there. Beckham's there. And he'd never played left in his life. And he said, oh, yeah, but he knew it was a problem position. He said, I love playing left. I want to come in on my right foot. And Sven's not and go, oh, yeah, great. It was such a problem position. Didn't Jason Wilcox get a run there? And he got. He played in the Venables. Yeah. yeah, he played in the Venables just before the Euros. Um, uh, d- and just while we're, we're butting in there, you glossed over uh, something there, Lee, which I, I felt was quite interesting because you said you said Tottenham finished seventh that year, da, 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 and Jurgen Klinsmann won the Football Writers Association Footballer of the Year. Hmm. I mean, it would never happen now, would it? A, a team, oh, a team in seventh, seventh. yeah. Would, would have the Footballer of the Year. And, you know, I think that was as much about personality and the impact he had on the, on the Premier League, although he, he did, you know, play very, very well indeed. As, but again, just you know, slightly different, different times. Yeah. Well, I'm sure somebody's going to come in and tell me that there were sort of you know five of the last eight footballers of the year played for well, Scott you know, Parker won it. Scott Parker won it when West Ham was shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're That's... right. Back then, it was more commonplace because I remember Mark Hughes winning it. In 8889, this is the PFA, not the FWA, but awful, like absolute disgrace. It happened quite a lot, you're right, and then it became... I suppose also the gap between seventh and first then wouldn't have been what it is now. Yeah, and it wasn't seen as as um, a kind of glass ceiling. You know, there wasn't a, a kind of... Partly because there was either no European football in the Hillsborough aftermath or nobody quite knew what the... What, how to qualify for the various European tournaments. Of course, there's a Cup Winners' Cup and there's the UEFA Cup then, but nobody quite knew that if the Cup winners were also in the UEFA Cup, did that mean that the FA Cup runners-up went into the Cup Winners' Cup or was it the team who finished sixth and what happened if somebody won? But it wasn't as important to play in in Europe then either. Certainly, um, it didn't feel as important. So a lot of those kind of things sort of slip and slide away uh, back back then. Uh, just to finish off, the, what happened to the rest of the famous five? Darren Anderton suffered horrendously with injury for the next three seasons, as we all remember. Played only 29 times in three years. Despite this, he did manage to get into the England team for Euro 96 and France 98 and acquitted himself very well. This period of his career led to the sick note nickname and even mentioned on Peep Show. Uh, he did stay with the club until 2004. Terry Sheringham remained at the club's main forward until the summer of 1997 when he went to some other club and did to some other <laughs> things. Um, Ozzy, on reflecting on this, we've we've also we've already mentioned that he said that he he tried to pretend he was the prototype for for recent Barcelona performances, but he didn't have any regrets. He said, uh, you know, do you re- regret going going with that front five at Spurs? He says, I'm not going to do the voice. He said, no, not at all. That was not the problem. It was the way the press thought about the situation, but it was not the reality. I was desperate at the time, and I would always prefer to have a balanced team. You cannot have a good team if you're not balanced. But I certainly believe. You have to use your best players. And the players you are talking about, the attacking five of Anderton, Nick Barnby, Teddy Sheringham, Klinsman and Dumitrescu, they were wonderful players. And that is why I played them. 
Still not a very convincing uh, explanation, <laughs> it sounds, is it? It sounds like he doesn't believe himself. <laughs> he does, yeah. He? Um, yeah, I'll just see what comes out and see if it sounds credible. Uh, yeah. But we should say also that his romantic methods, and I don't know enough about the system or anything, but he did produce a brilliant team at Swindon who should have been promoted or would have been promoted to the what is now the Premier League. Mm. Um, so he, he wasn't just some... I know it's... He, kind of maverick nature bless him but he clearly did a bloody good job at Swindon um, yeah and Sheringham said has announced his plan I think again which feeds into this whole he didn't really know what he was doing you know and, and Sheringham said what do you mean and he said well how are you going to do that and Adelaide just basically responded with we'll sort something out you're all quality players there's a way we can get it sorted I don't think he ever really had your point <laughs> Gary he never really articulated what that way was yeah. I think other than just well, go on the field yeah if you, if you think of Argentina's approach to international tournaments in the intervening period um, perhaps Ardiles is the template for uh, Argentina's <laughs> national side because they've pretty much picked 11 players who were really good and said you know sort of go out there and run around a bit. You took Matt Ferrara and Riquelme, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Gary's favourite two players of all time, yes. Ferrara and Riquelme. Yeah. <laughs> the dream midfield. Um, however, at the end of it all, though, the players still did absolutely love him. Sheringham didn't bear any grudges. Even when he was dropped for the final game against West Ham, he said, as a strategy for a, ensuring a healthy and proper life in the pr- Premiership was our game plan. It was more of an accident waiting to happen, but incredibly fond of the guy. I think he... I think yeah, it's the, dislike him, can you? It's the Keegan like, vibe, isn't it? He just seems like a genuinely nice fella, you know? Yeah, he can't dislike the guy, he does. Or maybe he can, I don't know, Gary. <laughs> no, I, I, I liked him as well. I mean, how can you... He, he, he wore the number one shirt and played midfield, <laughs> you know? How can you dislike someone who had the who had the Keones to do that? So that's our little chat through the 1994-95. Well, not really the whole 94-95 season in bits, but really wanted to focus on that famous that famous five, which, and I suppose it's testament. Again, it's that, you know, as an Oldham fan, uh, you know, we did the Oldham thing. I think you said on it, Rob, you said people will always remember that 89-90 team, despite the fact that we weren't very good. <laughs> uh, it, well, we were, but you know what I mean? We didn't win anything or anything. There is something about this team will lives long in all of our memories because there is something different about football that isn't just winning stuff, isn't there? Um, so that's the end of that. So we're now going to move on to the final part of our show, which is our journeyman of the week, nominated this week by a lovely listener on Twitter, Matt Hamilton, who suggested that we should take a look at Peter Barnes. But just before we do, mm. a lovely piece of uh, research, because as you know, listeners, can, I'm sure you can tell, I've done a huge amount of research for <laughs> this uh, show, is that Jurgen Klinsmann is a journeyman. He comes from a family of bakers. He uh, undertook his uh, apprenticeship, as you would expect of someone as meticulous as Jürgen <laughs> Klinsmann in his early uh, years. And um, he's he's known as the baker's son, apparently, in, in Germany. And he is a journeyman. Uh, he, is, uh, he has the right to call himself that, having gone through um, his Beruf, I think they call it in Germany, uh, apprenticeship. You don't get this on the football podcast, do you, ladies and gentlemen? Let's be honest. Uh, yeah, so I mean, that's just again, it's very talk about on brand. That's very on brand for Klinsman, isn't it? In his VW Beetle, it is making you know artisan bread and generally being charming and lovely all at the same time. So, yeah, journey of the week, Mr. Peter Barnes. Who, um, let's just take a very quick look at his before we go through it in some detail. The actual numbers he had a 29 year career, Peter Barnes, played on the left side of midfield. We'll get into all that in a minute. But I think he had 29 clubs in 29 years, which is a journeyman rating of one, which basically <laughs> means he had a club for every year, which is 
unbelievable. And some of the clubs, he played from 1974 to 1993, which is incredible in itself. But that's, that's who he is. We'll talk about some of the clubs later. That's but, 19 years, isn't it? Of course it's 19 years. So it's actually even higher. So you had 29 clubs in 19 years. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh, this is good radio, isn't it? Counting. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a journeyman rating of about, I can't do it now, 1.5, I think. One which and is, a half. Which yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he's born in Manchester. In, born in Manchester. He came through the ranks at Manchester City and made his debut at 17. His career peaked as a teenager when he scored in Manchester City's opener in their 2-1 win over Newcastle in the 76 League Cup final. That was the last trophy for 35 years, City. Done all right since. Uh, the same season, he was voted PFA Young Player of the Year, made his England debut a year later, earning 22 caps and scoring four times. I was genuinely surprised he had that many England caps, I must be honest. He was. Oh, he's a very. Uh, Gary will remember him better, but he was a very talented winger. Anyway, I'm not sure how effective he was, apart from a couple of periods in his career. But he was quite. Um, from what I've again, what I've read and seen, he's quite a kind of uh, exciting, but also quite an elegant runner and uh, the kind of player you could imagine managers being seduced by, and they think they'll be better than they actually are. Style of substance and that. Yeah, I, I I think that's a, a, a very good uh, description. Um, he he looked the part. He was he was the son, I think, of a chief scout, so he was steeped in in football. And um, you know, he had the the blonde hair and the blue eyes, so you could always pick him out, even if he was on the other side of the uh, of the field playing on the wing. And he was. I won't say he was the last of them, but he was certainly um, one of the last of the of the real full-on wingers. You know, the chalk was on the boots. You know, he stayed wide. Um, his goal-scoring record there was probably a little better than I thought because I don't recall him having any it shots was, at all. You know, it was he, excellent he just, at West Brom. He had a couple yeah. of years at West Brom and it was really good. But he, in the main, he 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 stayed out wide, and his job was to was to send in in crosses. And he was the he was the kind of player that you know I've I've always slightly distrusted because if the game was going against you, in my mind's eye, I've got sort of Barnes kicking his heels on the halfway line, saying, "Why aren't you giving the ball to me?" rather than going off and and trying to get it. And I know part of the the job of a winger is to stretch the play and to be the outlet and, and all of this. Um, but uh, yeah, he would do, he would do two or three sort of outrageous sort of runs and dribbles and, and stuff like this. Uh, and then maybe not see him for a few weeks, you know, at his, at his best. And I'm sure, you know, there'd be a highlight reel somewhere on YouTube and you'd be looking at it thinking, God, you know, it's Ryan Giggs. Um, but he, <laughs> He, he certainly didn't have the output of of a uh, Ryan Giggs. Few few did, um, and I yeah I've always had that that slight distrust when when somehow the the other ten have have got to do a hell of a lot of work so you can sort of come in at the end and uh, beat a couple of men and knock a cross in. You need to be very good to go away with that. It's interesting that people comment on exactly that how lazy he was. Um, the lead assistant manager says, we are not asking Peter to run his blood to water, but we do want to see him get a bit of sweat occasionally. Yeah. And Ferguson, when Alex Ferguson was over at United, he couldn't get rid of him fast enough. He kind of vowed to have a look at everyone else, but Barnes was straight at the door. Because basically he says that Barnes just defend. It was... now, now Ferguson can indulge that. He indulged it with Cantona and Cristiano Ronaldo, but he's, he's sure as shit not going to indulge it with <laughs> Peter yeah. Barnes. Um, 
So it sounds like there was a sense of entitlement. Um, but yeah, I mean, he clearly was talented, particularly early in his career. I'm intrigued as to why he moved to Leeds from West Brom because um, that was a pretty much at the peak of his career. Leeds was struggling. They would go down that year. They played him as a centre-forward, which didn't work at all. Um, and it seems like his career never quite recovered, really, from that. And I mean, then he started his four wanderings. Yeah, it was a time when an extra £50 a week could get you to go from one club to another. Um, mm. You know, Footballers were well-paid by the standards of factory workers, but you certainly didn't need to sort of uh, indulge in the kind of sums now in terms of wages to tempt a player from one club to another. Uh, so there could be a few things in that. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me what you say about um, about Alex Ferguson there because, he, yeah, uh, Barnes was... He, he gave that he gave that impression to me. I always felt when you had Peter Barnes in the opposition, oh, you know, he might do something in this match, but he probably won't, and therefore we're only playing against ten. <laughs> and I suppose by then you were getting into it was becoming more commonplace to have the really hard working wingers like or wide players like Terry McDermott, Steve Coppel and so on. So as you say, Barnes was kind of increasingly being left behind. Which I again I get certain players are like that, you know, it sounds like Dimitrescu is like that as well, but you have to be very good to pull that shit and um yeah. he wasn't quite at that level. So after that shambolic move uh, to West Brom um, and then Leeds, so the shambolic move from West Brom to Leeds, he then went to La Liga for Real Betis for a year in 82-83 before returning to Leeds in 83-84 and didn't really do much. Went to Coventry for a year and then basically, as you say, went to, to Old Trafford. There's a fantastic anecdote with Gordon Strachan about Fergie subbing Barnes off in one match then going to look for him at full time to administer <laughs> the full Ferguson hairdryer. But Barnes had hid in the bath and kept ducking under the water of the bath every time the enraged, red-faced Ferguson burst into the room to give him a bollock, and he just kept submerging himself, which just, just says a lot about just how well it was going, doesn't that's it? The, that's the Robin Asquith approach to avoiding a manager. <laughs> yes. Um, Fergie didn't have much truck from time frame, immediately shipped him out. He went back across to Manchester to rejoin City. That didn't work out either. Neither did loan spells at Bolton, Port Vale, Wimbledon in 1987-88. From there, he went on a, a, as it says here, a dizzying five-year tour of clubs, playing a bare handful of games, and in some cases, no games at all. For, and uh, take it, settle yourselves in, everybody. You ready? Deep breath from me. Hull City, FC Firenze in Portugal, Bolton again, Sunderland, Stockport County on loan, Footscray Just in Australia, Bury, Drawhada United, Tampa Bay Rowdies, Stafford Rangers, Northwich Victoria, Wrexham, Radcliffe Borough, Mossley, Hamrun Spartans in, in Malta, SC Firenze again, and then his final game was for Cliftonville in Northern Ireland in 1992-93. That is such a weird juxtaposition, that list, between going to very sunny, nice places and horrible northern towns. It just seems to kind of jump backwards and forwards between them. I think there was an obligation on any player who had more than 10 clubs around that period for one of them to be Tampa Bay Rowdies. I think that was, <laughs> that was more or less included in, in the story of any and player. And Northwich Victoria always looms large in yeah, football history yeah. for reasons that nobody can quite put their finger on, yeah. Um, in total, as we mentioned earlier, he, he joined 29 different clubs, didn't play for all of them, and in one form or another in 19 years. In England, Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, Wales, Spain, Portugal, Australia, Malta, and with Tampa Bay Rowdies, the USA. Since retiring, he had two brief students in management in Gibraltar, pre-FIFA status, and at Runcorn. 
I get once again, sunny place to very nice, <laughs> nice, nice northern place. He now lives in Malaysia, apparently, where he's last seen working as a pundit for the local Premier League coverage. So there you go. Our journeyman of the week, nominated by Matt Hamilton, is Mr. Peter Barnes. I don't want to traduce him because there may be many reasons why you join a club and leave a club quite quickly. But if you found out as being a bit too lazy for the team on the training pitch, that's got to be a bit of a worry. You get get binned off without actually getting on the pitch to play for the first team. A man with 22 England caps. Um, that 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 is quite something, really. But, uh, and he was also he was also recorded singing the Man City's Blue Moon after their 2011-12 Premier League title. Just a just a, a kind of minor point. And Rob, you've you've read far 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 more about this kind of stuff than than I have. Do you think people like like Barnes and Dumitrescu, um, Dumitrescu retiring at 29, Peter Barnes going on this magical mystery tour of 29 clubs. Do you think they actually like playing football? Do you think that they they just don't like it very much and kind of sort of change a scene might make a difference or, you know, I'm actually fed up with it, I'm going to pack it in at 29. I mean, they, I mean there, are, there are always people in jobs, even, you know, highly desirable jobs like professional footballer who don't actually like it. And I know, obviously, there's Jason McAteer, and there's probably some others that you've uh, mentioned, Lowry, who, yeah, who don't who don't like uh, don't like being footballers. I just wonder if there's not a, a whole kind of iceberg of 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 these players that have these slightly um, unpredictable or or un- unusual careers who are actually just thinking I'm fed up with it again. Yeah, my, I mean, I don't know, but my feeling would be a lot of them fall out of love with it sort of during their 20s and then it yeah. becomes increasingly a search for something um, that's gone, basically. I don't know, it's just speculating. Well, Rob, but... everyone's dream is writing about sport, isn't it? Is that still your dream? Yeah. <laughs> 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 the, um, I, I remember, I remember Wait, the, the most the... recent one I can remember is um, Ben, Mike... Ben Morasso Akotu, who yeah. basically oh, openly yeah, admitted yeah. that I'm just I'm good at this and I can earn a decent living, but I'm not I really think, into it at all. I, I get the impression he was different. I mean, I don't know, but I get the impression he genuinely didn't like it. Whereas you do hear and read and surmise about a lot of players who do fall out of love. Now, whether that's because of bitter careers, not going a word or injuries or whatever, you know. Um, and he's uh, apparently Michael Owen talks about it a lot in his his new book that he fell out of love with football basically and it's quite interesting that it happened to someone as good as him now there are a lot of reasons for that you know injuries and also yeah. shipped out of Liverpool and so on I suspect that's what happened and then they go searching for I, for something yeah I think I read a quote from it might I think it was Jan Vertonghen although I'm not certain but I think it was Vertonghen when he was asked a couple of years ago about a, a, a match that was vital or, or whatever you know when Tottenham were going for a Champions League slot or something he said oh um, no I had a, I was out with the wife and kids having a picnic or something and they said well you didn't watch the match I said no I don't watch much football mm-hmm. and I think I think it was Vertonghen who said he didn't watch much football and you know obviously there's many hundreds of Premier League players alone, uh, never mind players around the world. There must be plenty of them, say, uh, getting up in the morning and thinking not just 
God, I've got to go in and train injured, or I've got to go in and see that bunch of blokes don't like very much. But actually, I don't like what I'm doing. I don't yeah. want to go in and play football. I mean, why, why would there not be? And yet we all sort of think maybe we've just been acculturated this through reading, what was it, uh, Lee, the Scorcher Annual 1978? Yes. yes. <laughs> that, uh, that they're all living the dream. And sure, maybe actually. the Dumatrescus of this world aren't. There was a documentary sure. by the uh, about the Manic Street Preachers, talking about when... Um, Richie went missing and stuff, and Nicky Wire was been through the bases saying, no matter how good your job is, everything eventually becomes a routine. You yeah. know, t- touring with a rock and roll band is a routine, and you get this incredible hit of ninety minutes of like incredible energy, which must be like it must be like playing football on match day, surrounded by this general monotony. And yeah. then um, um, Hamilton's book about Brian Clough, provided you don't kiss me, he goes into a very long story about how utterly dull being a local reporter was a lot yeah. of the time yeah, yeah, but and, and he had Clough to, to kind of pep yeah. it up yeah. you know on, on a slightly different point but it plays into the same thing one of my favorite quotes um Lindsay Buckingham of Fleetwood Mac said anybody who's any good at anything knows they can do it better and you know I think that plays in a little bit into into these things you you must you must wake up in the morning and look at the same mountain again, no matter how good you are at it, and think, actually, I just want to stay in base camp and sort of, you know, <laughs> drink lager or something. And on that bombshell... Yeah, and there's probably plenty of bitterness as well. Someone like Barnes would see his career getting worse, you know, drifting yeah. away, seeing people like who he thought were beneath him playing for England and so on. Um, I don't know. And then, and then once that happens, you probably start taking less rational decisions, I don't know. Yeah, um, you might be right. Well, we all hold a U-take rational decisions this week, ladies and gentlemen, after you listen to this podcast. Make a rational decision and come and give us a bit of support at patreon.com slash Dorma. There you go. Um, we, I was about that, eh? See? This isn't my first rodeo. Um, thank- oh, we, should, we should say also, if people want to suggest topics, we'll, we'll probably ignore it, but we might do. There was one lad, Andy and Brom, actually, Gary, who we know from The Guardian. Oh, yes. yes. Suggested yeah. doing Blackburn, which I think is a good idea. Yeah, we will yes, do Blackburn. It's 25 there, years, isn't it? Yeah. 20 years. Uh, in May, and we can talk about. Them yeah, doing- he, he can write the research notes. You know, come <laughs> on. Yeah. That- so if you have anything in particular you want to us to talk shit about, then you know. Yeah, please, talk. please get in touch because we want to make sure it's relevant for everybody. Because mm. we can drone on about any old shite. Let me on. Yeah. Believe me, we, we will, and we will if you don't give us something good to talk about. That walk up to Ewood Park on a dark night with the lights on. Oh, that's a bit scary. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Uh, thank you very much, Gary. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rob. Cheers. Thank you most of all to everybody for listening. This has been Ness on Dorma. We'll speak to you all very, very soon. Take care. Ta-ra. <laughs>